Hello, this is John Girardi from Right to Life of Central California, the host of Right to Life Radio. And I'm Jonathan Keller from California Family Council, host of Life Family Liberty. So for those of you who are regular podcast listeners to one or the other of those shows, uh, I am the co-host for Life Family Liberty, and Jonathan is the co-host for Right to Life Radio. So we basically co-host each other's podcasts. And we like to be as confusing as possible. Yeah, exactly. So what we're going to do, this is a special podcast episode that will air on both podcast feeds. This is our community forum event, which occurred on Thursday, June the 20th, uh, where we had a community forum to discuss the new pro-life laws that are being passed in various states. So this is a bonus podcast, in addition to your normal weekly podcast, that's going to appear on both the Right to Life Radio podcast, and the Life Family Liberty podcast. So. We realize that one podcast a week is just not enough for many of you. You, yeah. you can't get you enough crave, of our you dulcet crave tones. More. You crave more. So uh, we're going to present the audio from that event right now in its full, its full duration, and we hope you'll listen to it and learn something from it. Again, this is our June 20th community forum event on new pro-life laws, so... Enjoy. And also, if you're not subscribing to one of our podcasts, I encourage you, if you're hearing this on the Life Family Liberty feed, go subscribe to Right to Life Radio. Exactly. And if you're listening to this on Right to Life Radio, go subscribe to Life Family Liberty. All right, let's roll it. Okay. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm going to hold this mic a little farther away from my face so I don't blow all your eardrums out. Uh, my name is John Girardi, and Jonathan Keller should test out his microphone. Here. I, I'm testing my microphone. Can you all hear me? I say what? A little higher. There we go. All right. That's not awkward at all. All right. <laughs> uh, so welcome, everyone. This is our second uh, community forum on abortion-related uh, legal issues. My name is John Girardi. I'm the director at Right to Life of Central California. This is my good buddy and radio co-host in various radio ventures, Jonathan Keller. Thank you all so much for joining us. And we're going to talk with you all today about some of the new uh, laws that have been passed throughout the country related to abortion. Uh, earlier this year, we had a forum just like this where we talked about it was right after New York had passed its law. Uh, Virginia was contemplating passing a law that they ultimately did not pass. And we were kind of alarmed, like, what is the future of abortion in the United States of America? Well, since that time, a lot of other pro-life states have fought back and have done some really excellent things, have passed a lot of really great bills to limit abortion within their states. So. Uh, we thought it was appropriate to, rather than be all doom and gloom, to talk about some of the positive things that are happening. And there are a lot of positive things. So uh, before we get started, um, I had a bunch of slides prepared about me and Jonathan. This is me. I'm, <laughs> I'm the executive director at Right to Life. Uh, I have a radio show uh, and a podcast. Uh, our radio show is on Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. Uh, I, I just want to say, John figured that you were going to see his jacket in the slide, so there's no need to wear it on stage. Yeah, so. well, also I've been running around lifting things and I'm sweating sweating like a pig, so anyway. Under a bunch of stage lights, a jacket would probably be a bad idea. Uh, and I'm the host of Right to Life Radio on Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. You can listen live from 7 to 8 a.m. in the morning on Saturdays, or you can just download the podcast. Uh, just look for Right to Life Radio on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, which is a different kind of podcast app. Uh, this is my family. That's my wife, Holly. That's the bench where I first asked Holly if she'd be my girlfriend <laughs> at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, and we keep coming back there every time we have a kid. So that middle one is Holly and me with our first kid, Maddie. 
and then Holly and me with our first two kids, Maddie and Sophie, and then this is uh, little baby Jack, John Peter. Um, he's like 10 months old now, so this is kind of an old slide, but anyway, um, we haven't managed to get back to Notre Dame yet with him, so we need to set up a trip like that. I look forward to that bench being crowded with like seven Girardi children eventually, yeah, yeah. so. <laughs> the, the bench breaks under our collective weight. Uh, and this is Jonathan Keller. I was throwing this slideshow together and didn't have time to get an adorable family picture, but Jonathan also has uh, an adorable baby son named Hudson and his lovely wife, Julia. And Jonathan is CEO of, well, tell the people about yourself. Yeah, I'm the CEO of California Family Council. For those of you in the room who I have not met before, uh, or if you're watching on Facebook Live, um, I had the privilege of way back in a previous lifetime actually being on staff at Right to Life, both as the youth director, and then uh, actually that's how John and I met way back when, and then as executive director, and really privileged and honored to be able to uh, partner with John on the radio show. Like John said, we kind of co-host each other's radio shows. Uh, he has his show, I have my show, Right to Life Radio, Life Family Liberty Radio, and we get to kind of partner up. And I, I always joke that it's great to have John co-host my show because I get to have an attorney comment on things without having billable hours. So yeah, There you go. Always handy. So I'm, I'm the cheapest attorney in Fresno. That's right. <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk about um, laws regulating abortion. But one of the things, a common argument that you face in talking with people about abortion is you'll often find this objection that people present. You know, I, I'm pro-life, I would never have an abortion, I don't like abortion, but I don't know about, you know, enforcing my beliefs on other people. I don't know about, you know, why do we have to pass laws? And even among some good-hearted pro-life people, you'll hear them say things sometimes like, well, well, we don't need to make abortion illegal, we need to make abortion unthinkable. And that sounds nice. But it sort of misses what the point of laws are and what the point of government is. So the sort of what I call the wussy position, the position of, well, I think abortion's bad, but I'm not going to impose my beliefs. One of the most significant people to articulate this position uh, was Governor Mario Cuomo. Governor Cuomo was the former governor of New York, and he gave a very significant speech at my alma mater, the University of Notre Dame, back in 1984. And in that speech, he basically laid out this theory. He applied it to Catholics, but I think Protestant politicians and other religious politicians have sort of taken a very similar position, that while the doctrines of his faith may say X, Y, or Z on a moral question, it's his duty as a politician to do things that are, quote, in the best interests of the American people or the people of New York, in his case, and not to impose the particular beliefs of his religion on others. Now, this is a really misguided view. Uh, he might have more of a point if we were talking about you know, abstaining from meat on Fridays in Lent, but he doesn't have as much of a point when he's talking about basic fundamental questions of justice, basic fundamental questions of how we treat our fellow human person. Um, if there's one point to having government that every single person along the political spectrum agrees to. I don't care if you're a super authoritarian conservative or a super left-wing socialist liberal. Wherever you fall on the political spectrum, everyone agrees that at least a fundamental purpose of government and the laws that governments pass and enact is to protect everyone from acts of private violence. 
to protect every individual from acts of private violence. Now, can I chime in and say one go thing? For it. This leads you to are one here of, to chime. That's perfect. So. <laughs> this actually leads to one of my very favorite quotes. And if you've listened to the podcast or radio show, either of our radio shows, you've probably heard me say this. But if not, I, I just want to remind people why I think Governor Cuomo, in this case, knew better. But he was trying to be way too squirmy and weaselly. And, and become president someday. And yeah, and become president at the same time. I want to read you a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And this is during the civil rights era when he was pushing back against people in that day and age that were saying, well, I mean, yes, of course, we all, you know, we agree that civil rights for African Americans are important, but we can't really force our views on other people. You know, we can't, we can't do things by the law. We have to educate people. We have to change hearts and minds. So I want to just read this quote quickly. He says, there's another myth that has circulated a great deal. I call it, for lack of a better phrase, the myth of educational determinism. I'm sure you've heard this. Legislation can't solve this problem. Only education can solve it. Judicial decrees can't solve it. Executive orders from the president can't solve it. Only with education and changing attitudes through education will we be able to come to a solution to this problem. Sounds exactly like today. But then he goes on and he says, now there's a partial truth here, for education does have a great role to play in this period of transition. But it's not either education or legislation. It is both education and legislation. And then this is the key quote. It may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. So, and, and that's, that's a, a very critical point that Dr. King makes. If I were all of a sudden to just haul off and punch Jonathan right in the face, what is there to stop me from doing it? Most of the things that exist to stop me outside of my ethical beliefs that it's wrong to punch people, gratuitously, uh, are embedded in the law. If I go to punch him, Jonathan knows he's justified, legally, morally, to punch me back, to defend himself. Other people know that they're entitled to come in and defend Jonathan from me. If I punch Jonathan, I also know before I throw that punch that there are legal consequences for that action that I can face. Legal consequences like I could go to jail. Jonathan could sue me. I could be forced to pay damages for his know, for his medical bills or whatever. It's, it's, I definitely would not come on the radio show on Saturday. Yeah, I can tell and he you that. will never come on my radio show ever again. Uh, so there are all these ways in which law functions to protect Jonathan from acts of private violence. Now, if I were to say, okay, we're going to only extend this legal protection, protection from acts of private violence, we're only going to extend that to guys in America now. You girls, you're on your own. All ladies in America are not protected from acts of private violence. This would obviously be a manifest injustice. You'd have a whole half of the population that would have no legal recourse, no defense, no protection from the law, from people gratuitously hauling off and punching them in the face or doing whatever, God knows what. So if you deprive any segment of the human population of that basic protection from an act of private violence, which has to be embedded in law, then you're creating something that's manifestly unjust. And this is a picture of the time, one of the times in our history as a country 
where that was manifestly the case, chattel slavery in the South. With chattel slavery in the South, prior to the Civil War, you had a whole segment of the population, people from Africa, who if a slave, if, if the plantation owner or someone who worked at the plantation were to beat them, were to sell them, were to split up their family, and even to engage in uh, certain other horrible forms of violence, um, they would have no legal recourse. They can't sue the slave owner. They can't try to prosecute the slave owner. The slave owner could kill them, and there, there, was, there was no recourse. That slave owner was not going to get prosecuted. And that was the key, one of the essential key problems with slavery. It wasn't that slave owners were mean. It was that they legally had the power of life and death over their slaves, and slaves had absolutely no legal recourse. So the key problem with slavery was, in many ways, a legal problem. It wasn't simply a problem of slave owners not having their hearts and minds changed. Yes, we need to work to change people's hearts and minds on abortion. That's absolutely true. And we need to work towards giving women better options so that they don't feel like they need abortion. We need to do all of those things. But the law plays an essential role. And by having a legal system in the United States right now where we basically say there's a whole segment of the human population that is not protected from this act of private violence, and it has nothing to do with any factor other than where you are located, if you are located inside a womb rather than outside of it. And that's the only determining factor between whether you are a valuable member of the human family and someone endowed by our country with rights and privileges and protection under law. Uh, I mean, the classic example is, you know, there are babies in the NICU at Valley Children's Hospital right now. They are, some of them are born and survive when they're born as early as 23, 24 weeks. Okay, that's, that's kind of the tipping point right now. And if you try to go into the NICU at Valley Children's Hospital with bad intentions, you will be buried under the jail, okay? <laughs> you will be, like, like, we will, our society will show as little mercy for you as they will for anybody. You will be punished to the fullest extent of the law. Yeah. Lisa Smith camp will be all over you. <laughs> so, but those same exact babies inside a womb in the state of California can be legally aborted through a DNE, dilation and extraction abortion, where this child who can feel pain, who has arms, legs, fingers, toes, a heartbeat, brain activity, and who is either viable or very close to the point of viability, this baby can legally be killed in this, in this state. And in essentially, as we'll talk about, every state in the union. So, and, and John, I wanna say, again, that is, why, that is why the law exists generally, is in many cases, it's not only to set a general regulated form of uh, behavior for the general public, but it's also specifically to protect people from those outliers. Um, there are a lot of stupid laws that are a result of someone doing something really stupid. Right. Yeah. And in some cases, you can look and you can say, well, do we really need a law against this? I mean, how often does that actually happen? Well, it probably doesn't happen that much. I mean, again, it's, it's probably pretty rare. You could look and say a normal person would not probably want to go break into uh, Valley Children's and hurt these innocent children in the NICU. But there's a reason that 
just because it would be a rare occurrence doesn't mean that you wouldn't have a law against it. And, and the sad thing is, again, on the education versus legislation side of things, Right to Life Central California does an amazing job of educating people, whether it's through the radio show, whether it's through uh, fair booths or all sorts of different things. But the sad reality is, in the United States of America, there are doctors, and I use that term very loosely, there are doctors who perform abortions, who many of them know that what they are doing is by most intents and purposes immoral, but it is financially lucrative for them to continue their profession. And as long as there is the legal option for them to continue their profession, as long as there's not a, a prohibition, they're going they're to going continue. To yeah. And, and that's, that's an, you bring up another point about teaching. You know, the law functions as a teacher of morality. It's another thing we have to understand. Like, if we want to change hearts and minds on the topic of abortion, Changing the law is a really important way to do that. A lot of people will base their moral judgment on how the government treats something. Because it's not just a pure question of is it legal or is it illegal. The government has a wide spectrum of ways in which it can approach a given practice. From you know, outright banning something and punishing it with criminal penalties on the one hand, to promoting it and providing taxpayer funding for it. And all along this spectrum, the government can do a number of things to support or oppose a practice. Prior to Roe v. Wade, most Americans, the vast majority of Americans, did not think of abortion as something that was good or moral or acceptable. After Roe v. Wade, that shifted enormously. And it was because the law had changed and the law had this dramatic effect on how people think of it. Now people talk about it you see mainstream publications talking about this question in, through the lens of um, uh, supporters of abortion rights believe, blah, 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 blah. Like they've already established somehow that these rights supposedly exist. Like, like, like they just take that as a given because yeah. it's been acknowledged in our law. So uh, this is why it's still a very important thing for pro-lifers to be engaged in politics, to be engaged with what is happening in Congress, what is happening in the courts, and what is happening at your state legislature, too. So we're going to talk about all of those things today. As you're flipping to that next slide, John, I want to give just one more sentence in that Martin Luther King Jr. quote to, to close it out. It says, I have, that, I have, you, the, you have that permanently thing. on your That's phone. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, he, he goes on after what he said before. He said, it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. And that is what we so often have to do in society through legislation. We must depend on religion and education to change bad internal attitudes, but we need legislation to control the external effects of those bad internal attitudes. Yeah. And that's what go. these states are doing. There you go. That Martin Luther King Jr. is a pretty smart guy. There you go. You might catch on. All right. Uh, so before we get started, uh, I want to talk, just give a sort of baseline of what the baseline is of what abortion law in America is today. And because abortion law is largely a creation of Supreme Court decisions, this holds true for essentially every state in the union. Uh, different states do slightly different things, but this is effectively what our law is. So abortion is legal in America for the entire duration of pregnancy and for any reason. We are one of only seven countries in the world to allow abortion at any time and for any reason. 
Certain states have bans on abortion after viability, which is around 23 weeks of pregnancy now, but they all have an exception for the mother's health. The Supreme Court's definition of health, which was issued in a separate decision, it was basically Roe v. Wade's sister decision, it was called Doe versus Bolton. They were both released on the same day. And Doe versus Bolton explained what the mother's health means. When, you know, if, if you can ban abortion in certain circumstances, but only if there's an exception for the mother's health, Doe v. Bolton defined what health means. Doe v. Bolton defined health so broadly that there is literally no pregnancy that does not implicate a mother's health. It can include emotional health, uh, familial health, which means my family dynamic will be upset if I have this baby, therefore I want to have an abortion. Oh, your health is implicated, you can have this abortion. So the health exception that is included in any ban on abortion after the point of fetal viability, it's an exception that swallows the rule. It's an exception that renders the rule completely meaningless, okay? Now, I, I say this, not looking at the laws that are being passed in various states throughout the country right now. A lot of states throughout the country right now are passing laws to deviate from this norm. This norm is what was established by the US Supreme Court. States now are passing laws to challenge this norm. And until the Supreme Court ratifies a change to this norm, all these state laws that have been passed, banning abortion at six weeks or banning abortion at at fetal heartbeat, whatever, none of those laws are ultimately gonna go into effect until the US Supreme Court hears a case to change that norm right there, okay? So uh, th this is the thing, when, when you see pro-choice states you know, passing laws to say, oh, we're legalizing abortion up through the third trimester, all they're really doing is trying to codify their state law so that it's completely consistent with this standard, okay? This is the national standard. Right? And th that's the thing that's encouraging, John, about these laws, is they really are just a, a fusillade, a salvo, at Roe v. Wade directly. Right. So let's talk about why that is, okay? Why are all of these conservative states passing laws to restrict abortion to six weeks of pregnancy, uh, Alabama passed a law to almost completely ban abortion? Why are all of these states passing these laws right now? Why are all of these pro-choice states passing extremely aggressive pro-choice laws. The reason for both is the same. It's the Supreme Court, okay? With uh, basically what you had on the Supreme Court for a long time was you had the Supreme Court decision Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This was a decision passed in 1992. It was basically Roe v. Wade's successor case it upheld legalized abortion, but allowed states to do certain kinds of like health and safety regulations, informed consent regulations, sort of around the periphery of abortion. Uh, Anthony Kennedy was the main justice on the court maintaining Planned Parenthood versus Casey as the norm. He was the mo one moderate in the middle, and you had four liberal justices to the left of him, four conservative justices to the right of him. So basically you had four conservative justices who said, Abortion is not a right that's protected by the Constitution. Abortion isn't found in the Constitution. States should be able to regulate abortion however they please. You had four left-wing justices to the left of Kennedy who said all these health and safety regulations that, that your Supreme Court decision allowed these states to pass, none of these health and safety regulations should stand. 
Abortion should be an absolutely fundamental, untouchable right. And all of these laws that have been passed in states since 1992 should all be swept away. And Anthony Kennedy was the one guy in the middle maintaining the status quo for abortion that we've lived under in this country since 1992, where you can't ban abortion for any duration of the pregnancy, but you can do certain things require that uh, a minor receive parental consent or have their parents notified before a minor can have an abortion. Uh, things like informed consent laws require that an ultrasound be offered to a woman before she have an abortion, require that certain descriptions of abortion be given to a woman, requiring 24-hour waiting periods before abortion, et cetera. And we're gonna talk about a lot of those different laws uh, when we get to our maps, which uh, all of you uh, should have a handout with a bunch of different maps in them. Uh, when Anthony Kennedy left the court, and was replaced by Brett Kavanaugh, who most people think is going to lean more towards the position of the four conservatives on the court, this is a huge shift, an enormous shift. Because it means that if the conservatives come to the majority on the court and say, we don't think the Constitution protects abortion at all, we don't think it's anywhere in the text of the Constitution, it's anywhere in the history of the Constitution, this is not something that is protected under the Constitution. Every state should regulate abortion the way they want. Which, spoiler alert, is how you and I feel about it. Yes, <laughs> at the very least. Uh, if, if that happens, all of the pro-choice states want to have their laws as ready as possible to have their laws be as extremely pro-choice as possible so that nothing changes for them. Okay? Even if we overturn Roe v. Wade in these pro-choice states, because they're passing these super aggressive laws, they're basically going to codify Roe v. Wade in their state laws. That's their plan. And, and these are sometimes called, you might hear them in the news, called trigger laws. The idea being that they don't go into effect now, but if something changes at the court, they are triggered and they go into effect. There are some laws that are, that are sort of structured like that, yeah. Now, the conservative states are seeing, oh, geez, the makeup of the Supreme Court is different. Let's pass laws that directly contradict Roe v. Wade, directly contradict Planned Parenthood versus Casey, so that we can get a legal challenge going so the Supreme Court can overturn those cases. That's what the conservative cases are trying to do. And they're also trying to get themselves set up to have the kinds of laws they want to have when Roe and Casey are overturned, okay? so. That's what all these states are doing. So let's look at a map. Let's look at a map or two. And let's look at some of the new laws that are being passed throughout the country. Now, this map is, in this map I've only sort of included states that have been passing laws in the last about two years or so, okay? We'll, let's say since the Trump administration. Um, so you, you can see up there states like New York, Vermont, uh, Oregon passed a very aggressive abortion law that basically the state's going to be funding almost every abortion, right, Jonathan? The, the, the Oregon law is actually really extreme. Yeah. Uh, the most recent addition to this list, though, is Illinois. Illinois just passed a law that might be the worst of all of these aggressive abortion laws. Uh, Illinois just passed this law last week. Um, Basically, the Illinois law does a number of things. First, it explicitly says that abortion is a fundamental right in the state of Illinois. It states that fetuses and embryos have absolutely no independent rights whatsoever. 
It eliminates conscience protections for doctors and medical personnel who don't want to do abortions. It's John, you, you have to pause there for a second because that is such a such an incredibly. I mean, it, it, that goes beyond, as you said, it goes beyond most of what these other states have done. The idea of conscience rights, a lot of times you'll hear it buried in a lot of news coverage, but essentially this is saying that if you are an OBGYN, for example, and a woman comes to you and says, I want to have an abortion, and you are working in a hospital, for example, you as a doctor would not be protected from being reprimanded, from being suspended, from being fired, Right. Well, if they, you chose, they might, they might even define your, um, they might define your act of refusing to provide this service as discrimination on the basis of, of a protected uh, category. Like, so basically, if you're if you're an OBGYN, you can't say I refuse to see black patients. Okay, if you do that, you can you can get sued. That's legitimate. Uh, it's called non-discrimination laws. Basically, what they're going to be doing is saying if you refuse to do an abortion you are discriminating on the basis of this new protected category of reproduction, reproductive health decisions, or uh, flat out your hospital is discriminating against women because your, hot, your Catholic hospital, let's say, is refusing to provide this essential form of women's health care, abortion. That's how we define it. Um, so it, it's a really egregious thing that they're going after conscience rights. Um, it, and you're right, Jonathan, it shouldn't just be you know, one thing out of many that's buried in there. But there's a lot of bad things in this it, law. It, it so, is. Yeah. It, uh, the other bad thing in this law is that it allows non-physicians to perform certain kinds of abortions. The, the other thing that it does, which, which is just shocking to me, some of you might remember from both during the Clinton administration 20 plus years ago, uh, it was a big deal when Barbara Boxer, our senator at the time from California, in a series of very heated debates on the floor of the Senate, went back and forth with Rick Santorum, the former senator of Pennsylvania, about the partial birth abortion ban. Um, President Clinton vetoed that bill twice, and then eventually, finally, uh, President Bush uh, did uh, sign the bill, and then it went to become a, it went to become a law, and fortunately, the Supreme Court upheld the ban on partial right. birth abortion. So federally, partial birth abortion is banned. But remarkably, it, it, there's no reason for Illinois to do this other than the most perverse type of virtue signaling. Illinois had a state ban on partial birth abortion that was, I'm assuming, in comportment with the federal law. The state of Illinois repealed their own state ban on partial birth abortion as part of this law. Right. In other words, even though it is illegal, federally. Even though there's no reason to do it, Illinois said, as far as it depends on us, we believe that in the state of Illinois, doctors should be able to partially deliver a child up to the base of the skull. And then, I'm sorry to be so graphic, but this is literally what it is. They should be able to insert scissors into the back of the baby's skull and suck the baby's brains out. That's not my description. That is the medically accurate procedure for yeah, what, happens. what happens. And Illinois Illinois said we we are okay with that. We, we are affirmatively endorsing this under this type of law. And again combined with the other thing, 
If you're a doctor who refuses to offer that type of a procedure, you could potentially be fired or sued for, for refusing to participate. Right. Or, or it can be, you know, an another thing that's been discussed, I don't know the exact parameters of the Illinois law, but uh, how many of you remember Rahm Emanuel? He's the former mayor of Chicago. He was President Obama's uh, former chief of staff. Okay, his brother is named Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. And Ezekiel Emanuel is a very prominent guy in the area of health and public policy. He helped craft Obamacare, the, the Affordable Care Act. So this guy's no, no slouch. He's a very prominent doctor. He's very prominent in the areas of uh, medicine and public policy. He had an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the most prominent medical journal in the country. My parents are both doctors. I had a copy of New England Journal of Medicine sitting around my house my whole life. And he had an article in New England Journal of Medicine two years ago where he explicitly called for all state conscience protections for OBs and obstetric nurses who don't want to participate in abortion. He called for all state conscience protections that protect those healthcare personnel to be abolished. That's explicitly what he called for. And basically his thesis was, your decision as a healthcare practitioner should be either you do abortions or don't become an OB. Either you're okay with doing abortions or don't become an obstetric nurse. That basically to make abortion this kind of like barrier for entry to anyone who wants to be an OB. So basically to say, no, no pro-life person is allowed to be an OB. If you're gonna be an OB, you gotta learn how to do abortions, you gotta do them. Maybe as, as part of, as even as part of your training. So it, it's it's something really extreme it's, and it seems like Illinois is, is picking up uh, what Ezekiel Emanuel wanted to do. Uh, I, I want to be sensitive because I'm, I'm sure that there's people in this room, um, I, I have friends that I know, if you go to a hospital, if you have a doctor who delivers your child, I know that there's many cases where some doctors who have performed abortions in the past go on to be normal family practice physicians and, or, or they, they also deliver children. But for, for my wife and I, for example, for, for John's wife and him, we part of the reason why we've chosen to uh, go to Dr. Amy Holmes as a doctor is because she is a thoroughly pro-life physician. Yes, she's also one twelfth of my boss. She's on <laughs> Right to Life's board of directors. Oh, that's also a good reason. Yeah, she's not my boss. So she's we not your boss. That's right. But for me, and I think for a lot of people, I think there are a lot of pro-life people in this country that are just deeply uncomfortable with the concept of the hands of a doctor who has literally taken the life of unborn children being the same hands that welcome your child into the world. Yeah. It's and the, the state of Illinois is saying that those people have no option. Yeah. Or, you know, go to Missouri. Yeah. Or, you know, go to Indiana or something. All right. Now, we're, we're looking at this map here. I don't want to be totally exclusively focusing on Illinois, but they did just pass this law a week ago, so I thought I should let you guys know about it because it's, it's representative of what the pro-choice side wants to be doing. Now, the red states that you see in this picture are all states that have passed heartbeat bills just in the last several months. Uh, you have Ohio, you have uh, Kentucky, you have Missouri, you have Georgia, you have Mississippi, and you have Alabama. Uh, the orange states there are uh, states that have passed bans 
around 18 to 22 weeks of pregnancy. These are uh, fetal pain bill states. Basically, we've, we've determined through science that at about 20 weeks of pregnancy, this is the point at which a fetus in the womb can start to experience pain. And so Utah and Arkansas have passed laws to ban abortion at that point of the pregnancy. We put Alabama in um, Alabama crimson, the dark red. Alabama wins another national championship because they just passed the best pro-life law in the whole country. Um, Alabama's law almost completely bans all abortions except to save uh, the mother's life, which was kind of the pre-Roe v. Wade standard. Looks like a light bulb might have just gone out over there, but uh, we'll be okay. Um, so I apologize if anyone's in, in, uh, shrouded in darkness over there. Uh, maybe one of my staff can go uh, look for Susie. No more darkness than Illinois or Oregon. We'll yeah, just put it that go. way. There you go. Uh, so these are some of the states that have passed these new laws. Now, uh, again, I just want to emphasize all of these states that have passed these heartbeat bills, these 18 to 22-week abortion bills, Alabama's bill. None of these laws are coming into effect yet, okay? All of these laws are being stayed pending litigation, okay? Because, again, that standard that I showed you guys earlier on that the Supreme Court has established, that is still the national standard. Regardless of what Alabama tries to do, Alabama can pass this law, but it's immediately the subject of a lawsuit in the federal courts that's gonna stop it from going into effect, okay? So while these states have passed these great laws, there's not going to come into effect in those states, not until the U.S. Supreme Court hears a case that's going to challenge whether or not these laws are acceptable, okay? Now, that's not the only, and by the way, this should be on the handout uh, that you all have. This isn't the only map we got. We got like four maps, <laughs> so here we go. Now, there are other kinds of good laws, though, that are being passed um, in states throughout the country. So, uh, and there are all kinds of different legal things that are happening with abortion in, in various different ways. So I'm gonna talk about a bunch of these different categories. Some of these maps, the, the different categories on them don't necessarily relate to each other, but it's interesting and you'll learn something. Okay, so I'm gonna talk about abortion discrimination laws. Uh, I wanna talk about abortion discrimination laws. What is an abortion discrimination law? An abortion discrimination law is a law that says basically you cannot choose to abort your child on the basis of the child's race, on the basis of the child's sex, or on the basis of some mental or physical handicap that the child might have, okay? So the chief thing that comes to people's mind when you discuss bills like this is that this bill would protect a baby who, has, who is diagnosed with Down syndrome, who's diagnosed with spina bifida, uh, and other kinds of handicaps. Uh, basically what Indiana and Ohio have done is look at various other kinds of non-discrimination laws. There are all kinds of business non-discrimination laws that say you can't discriminate on, against someone on the basis of their race or on the basis of their sex, on the basis of uh, some kind of disability, and have applied a lot of those categories to abortion. You can't just have an abortion simply because you don't want a girl. You can't have an abortion simply because, you know, you're bizarrely racist and you've slept with someone who's a member of a race that you also hate and you don't want a baby who's half that race. You can't have an abortion just because the baby has some kind of uh, mental or physical handicap. Now, basically, if, 
if it would be illegal to use this criteria as discrimination in hiring someone, we do not think you should be able to kill them for that reason. Right, exactly. <laughs> so now, Indiana's discrimination, uh, abortion discrimination law has gone almost to the Supreme Court, okay? So uh, basically, Indiana's abortion discrimination law, which was actually signed by Mike Pence in 2016, right before he left for a different job, um, uh, Indiana's abortion discrimination law was appealed to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is, the, the way the federal courts work is you have the Supreme Court at the top, the circuit courts in the middle, and the little district courts at the bottom. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, one of those intermediate courts right below the Supreme Court, struck down Indiana's law saying it's unconstitutional because it's not consistent with, again, that national standard that we talked about, that national standard that says if you, have, if you want to have an abortion before the fetus is viable, you are totally allowed to do so. And if you want to have an abortion because the mother's health is implicated, you are totally allowed to do so. The Supreme Court decided not to hear the case of whether Indiana's law was constitutional or not. Now, this wasn't because the Supreme Court felt one way or another. It was simply because the Supreme Court, usually they only hear a case if they have different circuit courts disagreeing with each other on how to interpret a piece of federal law or different states disagreeing with each other. The Supreme Court comes in to resolve difficulties. But the Supreme Court is going to hear a case like this at some point, uh, whether it be after Ohio's law is appealed up to them, whether it be after some other state passes a law to ban discriminatory abortions. This is something the Supreme Court is going to have to consider at some point. Now, Clarence Thomas, so basically the Supreme Court issued a statement saying, we're not gonna hear this case. Clarence Thomas, though, took the opportunity uh, to talk about, in, in his sort of concurrence with the decision not to hear the case, he issued a big, long concurrence opinion where he talked about the history of abortion being used as a tool for eugenics. Abortion being used as a tool for eugenics against undesirable populations in the United States. And Justice Thomas, being the only African-American justice on the court, highlighted how abortion has impacted the African-American community. Um, and talked about how Margaret Sanger had her Negro project, where basically it was this project to convince African-Americans to uh, use contraception because she thought poor African-Americans were the problem in the South, not, not the social conditions that kept them poor. It was, it was them, them themselves. So she wanted to institute measures to have less African, uh, a smaller African-American population. So Justice Thomas talked about that quite a bit, and it was really, really interesting. Um, so that's what abortion discrimination laws are, and they're coming down the pike. Uh, at some point, the Supreme Court's going to have to hear this, and um, we'll, we'll wait and see. I, and I feel better about having Brett Kavanaugh hear a case like that than Anthony Kennedy. Um, and I will say that one of the great things about laws like this is that it allows you to point out the, the barbaric hypocrisy of abortion. Um, I mean, again, John, the, the idea that a country like Iceland, for example, you guys might have seen this headline from last year, there was a story on Iceland that said, oh, great news, you know. Um, Iceland has almost entirely eliminated, eliminated Down syndrome within its population. Well, you read that headline and you go, wow, that's amazing, they cured Down syndrome. No, 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 no. 
read very carefully. It doesn't say they cured Down syndrome within their population. It says they have almost eliminated Down syndrome. And if you read past the headline, what they've done is gotten to the point where not just over 90%, which is what it is in the US, but almost 100% of children in the womb who are through prenatal testing are determined to have Down syndrome, almost 100% of those children are aborted in the nation of Iceland. Yeah. That, that is barbaric, it is discriminatory, it is inhumane. And the, the good thing about these uh, abortion discrimination bans or discrimination abortion bans is that it allows us as pro-lifers to say, why, if, you, if we celebrate the contributions of people with special needs to our society, the Special Olympics and, and all sorts of other things, if we celebrate the fact that even when life has difficulties or is imperfect, it's, it's beautiful and still created in the image of God, why in the world would we choose to specifically target for destruction and elimination those people inside the womb? Right. They need to sort of decide, is, is a Down syndrome life a life worth living or is it not? And if you say that practically every single kid with Down syndrome should be aborted, you're, you are saying no. And I don't care how much you know, federal money you want to throw at the Special Olympics. I don't care you know, how nicey-dicey you, you say you are. If you don't think a Down syndrome life should be allowed to live, then how much do you really care for people with mental handicaps? So, yeah. um, we're, we're also going to talk about dilation and evacuation bans. Uh, a bunch of states, as you can see, all the states in green there, have passed laws to ban what are called D&E abortions. Uh, this is the most common form of second trimester abortions. Uh, it's very horrific and violent. It involves you know, children who have limbs, arms and legs, and you know, heartbeat, and these are formed human beings, recognizable human beings uh, who are killed in a very gruesome way through the dilation and evacuation procedure. And a bunch of states have tried to pass bans on that procedure, and almost all of these bans are hung up in the federal courts. Although, interestingly, West Virginia's ban on it has not yet been challenged in the federal courts. Uh, actually, Mississippi and West Virginia, both of their bans on this procedure have not yet been challenged in the federal courts, which is a really good thing. So those laws do, in fact, stand in Mississippi and West Virginia. All right, we're gonna move on to informed consent provisions. Now this is an interesting topic. I have here, I have right here. Sorry, that was too loud. Um, uh, Wake up. Now I, did the, now, I did this sort of broadly. This is an article from the Guttmacher Institute. You might be wondering, what's the Guttmacher Institute? Why, John, it's, it's a purely objective and fact-based, non-biased research source, right? See, that's, that's what the mainstream media would want you to believe. Okay, a lot of media articles that talk about abortion will cite information and statistics and research provided to them by the Guttmacher Institute, which they label as a research entity uh, that discusses issues surrounding abortion rights. That's what the Guttmacher Institute is. What they don't say is that the Guttmacher Institute used to be part of Planned Parenthood. It was part of the Planned Parenthood organization. They became a separate corporate entity, but they were originally part of Planned Parenthood, and they're named after a former Planned, Pres 
Planned Parenthood president named Dr. Alan Guttmacher. Uh, Dr. Guttmacher was a lovely chap. Uh, he, he still thought eugenics was cool way after World War II was over. So by, by the time World War II was done, everyone saw the practical effects of what eugenics looked like at the Nuremberg trials, and everyone was pretty much done with eugenics. Not Dr. Uh, not Dr. Guttmacher. He was, became the president of Planned Parenthood, and he continued to talk about eugenics as getting rid of undesirable populations, appealing to uh, racist attitudes towards African Americans and towards a number of people, and promoted abortion as a tool for eugenics. Anyway, that was all a big run-up to talking about something else, so excuse my digression. Uh, basically, this chart shows in red states that basically give no, almost no information to a woman whatsoever before she has an abortion, other than this is the gestational age of your baby, and this is the procedure that we're doing. That's it. And you can see some of the usual suspects are there, California, uh, Connecticut, Illinois, uh, but there are some surprising ones in there, Florida, Indiana, Missouri. Now some of these states, uh, some of these states are kind of surprising, but then there are a bunch of states that have done really good stuff to provide more informed consent, things like ultrasounds, things like information on the fetus's gestational age, descriptions of fetal development throughout the pregnancy, uh, descriptions of all the common abortion procedures, offering ultrasounds, offering more, offering options for crisis pregnancy centers or for adoption or things like that. Um, so all these states in blue get a thumbs up. The states in red, a little less so. This is a very interesting map. Which states pay for abortion through Medicaid? Now, Medicaid is the federal health care program that basically it provides federally gov federal government subsidized health insurance for people who are under a certain income threshold. Okay, in California, we have Medi-Cal. Right, uh, a lot of we all know about Medi-Cal, what Medi-Cal is, and what Medi-Cal does. Now. Federal dollars that are spent on Medicaid cannot pay for abortion directly. And this is because of this thing called the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment is this rider that gets attached to the federal budget every year, and basically the Hyde Amendment says that no federal dollars can directly pay for abortion except in cases of rape, incest, and life of the mother. Okay? So federal dollars can't pay for abortion, but individual states can make their own determination about whether or not they want state taxpayer revenue to pay for abortion, okay? So, the states in red all use state taxpayer dollars to pay for abortions. Now, a lot of the usual suspects are there. California, New York, uh, but there are some outliers there that you, it's kind of surprising. What the heck is Alaska doing paying for abortions? What the heck is Montana doing paying for abortions? The states in blue will only have their state, they follow the federal standard. Their state only pays for abortion in case of rape, incest, or the mother's life. And South Dakota gets the grand prize here. South Dakota will only pay for abort, will not pay for abortions through their state Medicaid program in cases of rape or incest. They will only do so to protect the mother in, for something like an ectopic pregnancy or something to protect the mother's life. 
uh, which isn't really even an abortion procedure in a, in a certain sense. So uh, this is a, another interesting map for you to focus on. And now, Jonathan, I think I want to give the history of why California pays for abortion through Medicaid. All right. Before you do that, I just want to point out one thing, that California, I, I know we've been talking about some positive things, but California has the ignominious distinction of being one of only 15 states that pays for abortion with taxpayer dollars, one of only three states in the nation that refuses to participate in the Centers for Disease Control's voluntary reporting metric. In other words, California refuses to share how many abortions happen in our state with the federal government. And we're the only state, the only state in the nation that does both of those things. We're the only state that both pays for abortion with tax dollars and refuses to tell the government about it. So California, in a lot of ways, before you get to that, we're this weird black box where you it's very difficult to actually know how many abortions are happening in our state and how exactly they're getting right. paid for. And it, and it actually, it makes national abortion numbers difficult to fathom because the single most populous state in the country doesn't provide the CDC with accurate information. A lot of times you'll see a report in the media that'll say, hey, great news, the abortion rate decreased this year. And by, by 1%. One, and you'll see, for example, I think it said, you know, most recent number, 686,000 abortions in the most recent year. And then there's an asterisk at the end of it. And then it says, actually, it doesn't include California numbers. Yeah. Well, it, California has the highest number of abortions in the state, so we have no in idea country, how, right. how many are actually happening. Yeah. Now, we can make good estimates, but again, it's still, it's still very difficult. Now, why does California pay for abortion through Medicaid? This is a sordid story. So 1973, Roe v. Wade happens, abortion is legal. 1976, Congress enacts the Hyde Amendment. And Congress basically says, all right, we know abortion's legal, but it's too much to make taxpayers pay for it. We're not gonna make our taxpayers pay for this. We recognize this is a very controversial idea. Democrats and Republicans both got together and said, all right, we're not gonna make the taxpayers pay for this, let's pass the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment has been attached to the federal budget every single year since. California legislators, seeing what the Hyde Amendment, seeing what legislators were doing nationally, the California legislature said, okay, well, we'll do something similar. We'll pass basically a California Hyde Amendment because at that point, our Medi-Cal program was paying for abortion. It was healthcare service, but paying for abortion. So they pass this law, it gets signed, we're not paying for abortions anymore. Well, the ACLU of Northern California, those dirty, rotten pieces of crap, the ACLU of Northern California files a lawsuit saying that, no, 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 by cutting off Medi-Cal funding for abortion, you are violating the California state constitution because you can't, it is a, it is a, denial of the due process rights for these poor women who have been relying now on the state government paying for abortion, once you start providing this service to them, you can't start taking it away. Right? This, is, this is taxpayer money being spent on this thing. And their argument is basically, once you start paying for it, you can't stop paying for it because these poor women are relying on it. Well, like, I mean, if the state government makes a bad decision to start paying for, I don't know, in the Medi-Cal program, start 
don't know, paying for boob jobs in the medical program, does that mean that all poor women are now reliant on the, on the state government to pay for boob jobs, so now we can never, ever, ever change our mind? That was the argument the ACLU was making about abortion, this elective procedure. Well, it goes to the California Supreme Court, which at that time and still today was just stacked with hardcore progressive justices. The California Supreme Court agreed with the ACLU and issued a California State Supreme Court decision saying, no, 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 the California Constitution requires that our state Medi-Cal program pay for abortion. And state legislature, we don't care what you do. You can pass whatever laws you want, but the California State Constitution controls over your votes. So every year the state legislature would try to defund it, it would get struck down uh, once it got up to the California Supreme Court. Now, we don't have in our state legislature the political will to do something like that. If anything, we have the exact opposite. But that is why California, we have always paid for abortion through our Medi-Cal program, because of our wild activist California Supreme Court. So after that, <laughs> it's now time to talk about California a little. And this is a call to action for all of you. So uh, the current law in California surrounding abortion is this. Uh, California follows the standard that was set by the Supreme Court in Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Dovery Bolton. Abortion is legal for all nine months. It's explicitly legal up to the point of fetal viability, and then it's legal after viability if the mother's health is endangered. Again, that definition of health is really broad. Uh, people say to me, uh, after New York passed its law, people would say to me, oh boy, I hope California doesn't do something like that. We've done that. We've already, we, that's what we have. That is the law already in the state of California. In California, Medi-Cal pays for abortions. Non-physicians can perform some abortions. Every health insurance plan sold in the state of California has to cover abortion as an essential piece of healthcare. Um, every employer-based insurance plan that is sold in the state, I don't care if you're a church, I don't care what it is, it covers abortion. Every single insurance plan sold in the state has to cover abortion. Now, that's the current law, and I want to talk with you guys about some of the proposed laws. First of all, you have Gavin Newsom out there in the news talking about uh, these different states that are passing heartbeat laws, and Gavin Newsom is encouraging women from around the country, come to California to have your abortion. We are a state that protects abortion rights. Come to California. There's a, law that's been, there's a bill that's been introduced in the state legislature to offer tax breaks to the film industry Basically, there are a lot of uh, movie companies that were filming in Georgia because Georgia was offering them tax breaks to do so. Well, Georgia has passed this, this heartbeat bill, banning abortion in six weeks. But California is saying, whatever tax breaks you get in a state that passes a law like that, if you come to California to film your movie, we'll give you that same tax break. So they're trying to offer tax incentive. I mean, the only tax cut that a Democrat has ever liked. Um, but unfortunately, it's for this. I, I just want to pause on that and, and help you understand this. You have these large companies, whether it's Disney or Sony Pictures or whatever it is, that are filming in a state like Georgia. Gavin Newsom and the Democrats are actually trying to use abortion as a shiny object. It's the carrot that they are dangling in front of the movie industry to try to entice them to come to California. Do you, you guys just understand how sick? I mean, right. there really isn't another word. Right. Like, the other absurd thing about that, like, Disney is all, 
like Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, was saying, oh, it'll be really hard for us to film in Georgia now that they've passed this law. Meanwhile, the Star Wars films, a bunch of scenes of them were filmed in, I don't even remember. Tunisia. Tunisia, a Muslim-majority country that, uh, for one, has no legalized abortion, and two, punishes gay people by, like, murdering them. Like, it's this horrible, oppressive, you know, Muslim country. They don't mind filming over there, but, oh, no, if Georgia wants to ban abortion in six weeks, now we're up in arms. Now God, God forbid we could, you know. we could film in the South. We'll yeah, have to come back to California. We, we, let's ignore actual human rights violations in these countries because we're making money filming over there and we need a good desert scene for, you know, uh, Ray's, you know, home planet, whatever, that's not Tatooine. But it's kind of like Tatooine, but it's not Tatooine. <laughs> um, probably you Star Wars fans out there. Um, anyway. Uh, it's completely ridiculous. Now, the main bill that we at Rights Life are concerned about, though, at the state legislature, and all of you are invited, by the way, to join us next Tuesday, uh, is SB 24. SB 24 is a bill that requires medication abortion to be made available at every CSU and UC, okay? At the student health center of every CSU and UC. What is medication abortion? This is not the morning after pill. This is a series of two pills that you take at eight to 10 weeks pregnancy to artificially induce a miscarriage. All of you, or most of you, I'm guessing, have seen the movie Unplanned. Show of hands, how many of you saw it? Okay, the, the chemical abortion scene, that's, mm. that's what this is. They're gonna put that, they're gonna make that available at the student health centers of every CSU and UC. Fresno State included. Even though Fresno State has an abortion, as a Planned Parenthood, you know, medication abortion provider like two minutes from campus, Fresno State Student Health Center is gonna have this, okay? We are going to Sacramento on Tuesday. We're gonna be taking a bus. Uh, you're all invited to come, and we have a sign up on this iPad over here. So if you wanna come with us, sign up on the iPad. Um, talk to Tanya and Liz, they'll be by the iPad, they'll help you out, they'll get you all, all ready to go. Uh, we're gonna go to Sacramento. They're having a hearing on this bill on Tuesday at the California State uh, Assembly Education Committee. So we are gonna go to Sacramento. Uh, we're gonna drive up early in the morning. We're gonna leave from the parking lot of San Joaquin Memorial High School, and we're going to walk the halls of the state legislature. We're gonna join with other pro-life advocates from around the state. We're gonna meet with legislators. We're gonna lobby with them. We're gonna talk to their staff and we're gonna attend the legislative hearing that will be held at 1.30 to encourage a no vote on this bill. So if any of you wanna come, please sign up right now, get in touch with people you know who might wanna come, who are able to come. We apologize, we didn't give more advance notice for it because these, these hearings get scheduled at you know, various times and we were trying to be nimble and do something in response to it. So, um, Please let us know if you want to come, uh, because we think this is you know the most, and we have a generous donor who's willing to pay for the whole bus. So uh, please do come if you can, if you have a day free, if you know of you know kids who are out for school for the summer, teenagers who want to learn something. I'll give you a tour of the Capitol. Um, you can see the sites. You can learn a lot about how our state government works. So, and, and I'll tell you, it's really important for the legislators, especially. Republicans and Democrats both to hear from their constituents because a lot of times, I hate to say it, but Planned Parenthood, especially in the state of California, has a ton of money. And 
it's really discouraging, I'll be honest with you, it's discouraging and sad when you see all of these young college students, these young female pre-med students from Berkeley and from UC San Francisco and from UC Davis, all coming to the Capitol, all wearing their Planned Parenthood t-shirts, and they're going from office to office to office to browbeat Democrats and Republicans into supporting this type of legislation. And the only way that there's even a chance that any Democrats and Republicans are gonna hold fast and vote against the bill is for people like you to come up to the Capitol. Now, I mean, brass tacks, let's be honest. It's gonna be really, really tough to stop this bill in the legislature. But it, it's so important for people to at least hear your voices because if they don't hear any opposition at all, then the same frustration and discouragement that you feel, the legislators feel it a lot more. And I've talked to Republicans and even Democrat legislators who go, what's the point of us voting against it? I mean, the only people that are talking to us are the people who support it. Right. So even if, even if it is a long shot, I encourage you guys, come up and encourage these legislators to do the right thing. Jerry Brown actually vetoed this bill last year. So, you know, it can be done. Um, so anyway, that's it for us. We have a few minutes for questions if people have them, but uh, so far that's our presentation. So uh, I'm willing to take a couple of questions if people have them. Uh, Paul, I saw you raise your hand first, so. <laughs> as long as they're not all actually lectures. Yeah. Well, again, this is the problem with the numbers because for the whole span of abortion, so Paul is asking about uh, the estimates. Is it Paul thought it was 60 million abortions have taken place since Roe. Uh, we had mentioned the number 50 million. Um, again, Paul, the, the problem is California hasn't reported this whole time. So all the numbers that people have been are throwing out for the number of abortions that have happened since Roe, they're kind of estimates. I think it's somewhere in that 50 million to 60 million ballpark, though. When it comes, to if yes, uh, and in, in, John, in short, you probably want to repeat the question. Yeah, for Facebook. let's repeat the question. Okay, so the first question Paul asked was, "Is it fifty million? Is it sixty million? The second question Paul asked is, "Does the Supreme Court trump the rights of states?" Yes, basically, what the Supreme Court is saying is that the right to abortion is embedded in the U.S. Constitution. It's embedded in the Fourteenth Amendment. Okay, and the Fourteenth Amendment says that states cannot deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, okay? Uh, as a result, the state, the United States Constitution supersedes in its guarantees of various rights, it supersedes whatever state, whatever law an individual state passes. So, okay, if, if California passed a law saying, um, all right, we're outlawing the Presbyterian church, well, that law wouldn't stand. The Presbyterians would say, we have a First Amendment right under the US Constitution to, to free exercise of religion and that would be upheld. Okay, so yeah, so no, uh, state laws cannot contradict the US Constitution. The problem is that the US Supreme Court for years has grossly misinterpreted the Constitution and read into it a right that doesn't exist. Effectively, it doesn't do much, unfortunately. So basically what, 
the most likely scenario if Roe is overturned, Paul is asking, so what, what does that mean if Roe is overturned? What does that mean for like a state like California, for example? All it means, basically, is what's probably going to happen if Roe is overturned is the Supreme Court is going to say every state can abortion, can regulate abortion the way they want because the Constitution says nothing about it. Okay, so California is going to continue to have cruddy abortion laws. But a lot of states will have great abortion laws. Oklahoma will have great abortion laws. Texas will have great abortion laws. Ohio will have good abortion laws, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's the most likely outcome. A better outcome that I would love to see is one that says, actually, the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment, which say that no one shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, uh, that actually applies to unborn persons as well as born persons, and that no state should be able to have legalized abortion whatsoever. That's the outcome I would like. Now, that is Justice Scalia and some conservatives who followed him, they didn't think that that was a correct, that they did not think that that's the natural reading of what the Constitution actually said. Now, I don't necessarily agree with Justice Scalia. Um, I think there are some justices on the Supreme Court who might support that reading, though. Um, I think Justice Thomas might. I think Justice Gorsuch might. I think if my former law professor, Amy Barrett, gets nominated to the Supreme Court someday, uh, she might. Um, but uh, again, the most likely scenario is that uh, the court would say, the Constitution says nothing about abortion. Every state regulates it as they want. So. Uh, right, okay, so this is... Uh, How, question was, what about the, the Trump conscience protection? Yeah, so this is an important thing, and I don't know exactly all of the contours in which it supersedes different state laws, um, but this is a regulatory thing that can change from administration to administration. And uh, I think there are stronger ways to counteract what, for example, Illinois and New York are doing. There are probably going to be lawsuits to challenge those provisions of those laws that I think the Supreme Court will view favorably. But uh, there are existing federal conscience protections for doctors, and those need to stay in place. Um, to what extent they interact with all these different state laws, I don't know the exact answer to that. Um, but. Um, you know, they're important to stay in place. I, I'm not actually as worried about the conscience, the conscience protect, uh, the things in the Illinois and New York laws that are violating conscience rights, because I think ultimately this, the Supreme Court and the federal courts are going to strike down those provisions because they're, they're really attacking the conscientious rights of all kinds of people of goodwill to not have to participate in something that they don't want to participate in. Um, so there you go. Any other questions, Pastor? That is a a very tricky. That's a tricky question. So what, Pastor, Pastor Carter? For those of you watching on Facebook Live, Pastor was asking. If SB 24 passes, is our taxpayer dollars going to pay for medication abortion to be distributed at the CSU and UC campuses? Um, the supporters of the bill are arguing it is not. The supporters of the bill say it's going to be all be paid for from this private fund and not a single taxpayer dollar is going to be paid. All of us on the other side, and in fact, some nonpartisan people from the um, 
the California agency that does uh, bill analyses for the budgetary impact of these bills, uh, they did this for last year's bill and determined that, yes, this is almost certainly going to have to implicate taxpayer dollars and student tuition fees. So, and there are all kinds of other ways in which supporters of the bill are not factoring in how state resources are paying for this. You know, your state taxpayer dollars are already, and students who go to Fresno State, your tuition fees are already paying for maintenance and upkeep at the student health centers, okay? Overhead is part of the cost of an abortion. You're, you're crazy if you think otherwise. That's, that's baked into the cost of an abortion, of giving you a prescription for abortion. Um, and also, in the, in the bill itself, there's a very peculiar way that they word it, and they say, nothing in this law will be construed to require the state of California to pay for these abortions on campus before, uh, I think, January of 2022. But you notice what they said there? They said it won't require it. It doesn't say it won't allow it. So in other words, the appropriators or the State Department of Health or the State Department of Education can come and say, well, the law doesn't say we have to do it, but it doesn't say we can't. It's also, and they can turn right around right. and put as much money towards right. it as they want. The program is also only privately funded for a certain number of years. I think yep. it's only for about five years, and then there's no provision after that. And then, surprise, surprise, John, just like the court said in other cases, well, students have now come to rely on this as a service. Right, right. Now it would be cruel and unconstitutional to take it away. Right, right. So uh, the answer to your question is very likely yes. Okay. You and I. So Pastor Carter's question is, what about liability? Uh, what about, you know, if, if there are adverse health care outcomes from girls taking medication abortion? And I'll note, uh, there have been 21 deaths reported as a result of medication abortion. Um, if a patient sues the CSU Student Health Center, who's going to pay that? And that's going to be you and I. Okay. So th this is something that's not really been... Uh, provided for in the bill, and so it's going to be student tuition fees and taxpayer dollars. Yes. We'll have this be the last question, folks, because we do need to kind of get wrapped up and uh, can move on. Um, but thank you for hearing us all out. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a good question. I, I don't know the exact answer to that. We actually have some social workers here if you want to talk to Patty Lametti, who's laughing over there in the, in the brown hair right there. Uh, so you can talk to her. Uh, California hasn't done too much yet to really directly attack conscience rights for healthcare workers. Um, my guess is that, yeah, you can still be uh, a social worker. I don't know if that's going to change at some point, um, but as for right now, I would say that, yeah, I think you're, you're 
probably safe. But you should talk to Patty, and uh, and it is something to be aware of. You know. Um, so, at any rate, I think that's going to do it for us, folks. If you have more questions, you can feel free to talk to me. Uh, the folks at Harris have been very kind keeping this open for us, but we do need to kind of get scooting out. So thank you all so much for being here. God bless. Thank and, you. And uh, if you want to join us, if you want to, if you want to join us in Sacramento, come talk to Tanya, and you can sign up at uh, the iPad right there, and uh, you can join us on Tuesday. So thank you. Thanks, everybody.